All right, so I am out for a little afternoon ski, and I've come to this spot that has a beautiful view of all these mountains. This place is somewhere I come a lot. It's near my home in Wyoming. But I never know what mountains I'm looking at because my trail maps only show the immediate vicinity, and these mountains are far away. If this scenario sounds familiar, check out the Peak Visor app. Peak Visor is one of our sponsors. Their app will help you figure out what mountains you're looking at when you're out on adventures. It provides mountain names, elevation, distance, and a ton of extra information on more than a million summits all over the world. Check out Peak Visor in the App Store. You might love it. If you want to revel in the wonder of the natural world while still asking tough questions about our place in that world, I'd like to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's called Outside In. Hosted by Sam Evans-Brown, Outside In tackles a broad range of subjects, from the environmental movement's troubling links to the eugenics movement, to the fraught history between hydropower development and indigenous rights in Canada. Outside In tries to capture the joy that attracts so many of us to the outdoors in the first place. The show has taken listeners under the ice of frozen lakes, to peat bogs in the Arctic, and up close to patches of moss in your own backyard. Outside In features deeply investigated stories and the deliberately goofy. It makes you think and makes you laugh. You can find Outside In in your favorite podcast app and at outsideinradio.org. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. For many people, the only thing harder than going on a life-changing thru-hike is coming back to the normal world afterwards. After so many deep insights and awe-inspiring views, at the end, you return to a home that at best stayed the same. Sometimes it's changed for the worse. So how do you return to a place that only seems more broken after spending half a year in paradise? Today's episode takes us from the Pacific Crest Trail back to a country that is literally and metaphorically on fire and takes a look at how we find the things worth returning for. Paul Barak has the story. And I should note, this story does reference suicide. It comes up about 30 seconds into the piece if you want to skip past it. I was called a pessimist a lot growing up, which I always thought was a strange way to pronounce realist. It's something I chose to be. Growing up with chronic depression, I developed a pretty dim view of the world. As a result, I kept the world at arm's length. A thick armor of ironic distance got me through a lot of hard years. But there always comes a time that nothing can protect you from. For me, it was my girlfriend's suicide in October of 2015. 
It was only 11 days after we'd gotten back together. For a week, I was completely shattered. And then, I was just numb. I had no idea how to process that much grief. So I just tried to tough it out and move on. I left my home in Seattle for a new life in Denver. Surprisingly, that didn't solve anything. This big chunk had been torn out of me, and I couldn't do anything to fill it. In December 2016, a friend's suicide tore out the rest. So I decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail the following spring. I was scared to leave my new life in Denver. I had no idea what the trail would be like or if I could even finish it. But I was equally scared to stay. The future looked dark and nowhere felt safe anymore. I was nervous as hell hiking north from the Mexican border on that first day, struggling under the weight of my backpack. But I was also struck by how pretty everything was. Even in that burnt desert landscape, purple sage still bloomed, and succulents sent up these vivid flowers. And this feeling I couldn't quite name rose up in me. That feeling kept coming back as the trail got cinematic in ways that I wasn't emotionally prepared for. I tried my best to keep my usual ironic distance. I'd be staring out in wonder at the elemental blue of Crater Lake. Say to my hiking partner Natasha, Well, just more trash in this land of dirt and squirrels. But that unfamiliar feeling would still be there. It wasn't just awe at the views. And it wasn't just happiness either. It was something I hadn't felt before. Whether it was the the glacial crags of the North Cascades, or just the fern glowing beneath a sunbeam in a dark forest, it'd well up into that ragged space that had been torn out. Every time it happened... I felt a little better. That feeling baffled me for months, until one night as I crested Muir Pass in the Sierra mountain range, this phoenix of a sunset was painting a glacial lake in reds and golds. And I finally figured it out. Gratitude. That feeling was gratitude. For years, I'd been focused on just getting through and toughing out the depression and the grief. But out here, life wasn't something I had to endure. It was something I loved every day. 
Even as I told myself, come on, man, this is a little hacky. There I was, repeating, I get to be alive. I can't believe I get to be alive. I'm so lucky. That luck continued. A week after Muir Pass, Natasha and I got the last two walk-up permits at the ranger station to climb Half Dome. We'd been waiting for this moment the entire hike, and we danced with joy inside the ranger station. The next morning, we stood nearly alone on Half Dome, giddy with awe. Half Dome does that to you once you're up there. Hiking up through the trees and over the rocks in Yosemite, you approach this hooded giant that dominates the valley. Then you grab a hold of the ladder hanging from that wall and climb rung by rung without ever looking down. Once you reach the top, you've left the planet. Now you're standing on the surface of the moon, looking down on the most stunning piece of the earth that you've ever seen. A churning ocean of white stone with green rafts of sequoias riding the swells. We grinned like idiots the entire time. It was one of the happiest moments of my life in a trail full of them. But it was all coming to an end. We'd already hiked all the miles from Mexico to Canada and had saved the Sierras for last. In a couple hundred miles, the hike would end in Northern California. This was the last highlight, the last piece of true awe and wonder. Once it was over, we would have to search so hard to find anything close to this feeling. And we probably wouldn't find it. I kept shaking my head and saying to Natasha, I don't know how I'm going to go back. She nodded, because that was the big question out there. We'd been asked at the entire trail by townspeople and also our families. They'd say how happy they were that we were enjoying our vacation, but then they'd ask, but really, what are you going to do when you have to come back to the real world? And I just started replying, this is the real world. Or at least, this was the good one. The other one just kept getting more chaotic. Metaphorically, it all felt like it was on fire. Every time I got in a signal range, my phone would buzz with news that was either terrifying, enraging, or just comically strange. You know, Nazi youth marched in Virginia and killed a protester with a car. The worst mass shooting in American history happened below a Las Vegas hotel. Plus, there were all these conspiracy theories starting to spread, which, for a Jewish person, is always a warning sign. 
the unease never went away. Even when I was days out from reception, passing by some snow-capped volcano, I'd see F-15s streak overhead and think, God, I hope that's a training mission. Meanwhile, everything was also literally on fire. Everywhere from western Canada to Africa and from Texas to Montana was going up in flames. The Pacific Crest Trail hadn't escaped it. From northern California on, fire helicopters circled overhead constantly. Natasha and I hiked fast and stayed ahead of fire closures sometimes by mere days. But those fires would catch up to us eventually. Ash was already falling on my family back in Seattle, which was especially freaking out my pregnant sister-in-law. Even on Half Dome, the air was thick with smoke, and we had nowhere to go but down. Hey, it's Willow. We'll hear the rest of Paul's story in a moment. But first, imagine owning your own outdoor company and spending each day doing the work you love. If you are an outdoors person with an idea for an outdoor product or service, how would you like a whole lot of support working your idea into a real live business? Turns out you're in luck. One of our sponsors for this episode is Moose Jaw, which is a fun-loving outdoor retail company. They are sponsoring their second Outdoor Industry Accelerator program. The program is designed to help entrepreneurs get their ideas on the table. Industry leaders will be available to you from retail experts to marketing experts with the know-how you need. This program has a proven track record. The three chosen participants from the first Accelerator program now all enjoy running their own outdoor companies. Do you have a dream? Then go for it. Applications are open now through January 14th. To find out more, visit the URL in our show notes or email tanner at icelab.co. Support for Out There also comes from BetterHelp. This year has been stressful in so many ways. If you're finding yourself grappling with a lot of big feelings and you can't just you know, go on a life-changing thru-hike right this second, remember that there are other things that can help restore our sense of well-being. BetterHelp provides professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in all sorts of areas, from depression and anxiety to grief and trauma. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions to match you with a therapist who can meet your specific needs. Don't let things spiral out of control. Take charge of your mental health and do something that's good for you. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. And now back to Paul's story. Two weeks later, Natasha flew back to Germany and I hiked the last hundred miles to Belden alone. With no fanfare and no applause, I completed the journey of my lifetime by walking into a Riverside Barn Resort, where a drunk tried to sell me a live rattlesnake 
in a jar. Drinking a beer on the bar's front porch, there was no sense of celebration. I'd spent 163 days unwrapping this incredible gift. Now there was just that hollow feeling you get on Christmas evening, surrounded by empty boxes. All I could say was, huh, it's over. I was scared to go back. I'd had time to process the grief. I'd seen views that had changed me. And had felt better out here than I ever had in my life. What if it was all temporary? I had no job lined up. The planet was only getting hotter. And Trump was still somehow president. Like, every day. Plus, immigrants were being rounded up, separated, and thrown into cages. Which, for a Jewish person, is an even bigger warning sign. The only piece of good news that I'd seen in the past week was that my niece had been born healthy. The next morning, I walked to the highway leading out of Belden and stuck my thumb out, hoping to hitch 65 miles out to a trail angel in Chico who'd agreed to put me up for the night. It was Monday, so no one had any reason to come by this party spot, and I'm trying to hitch 65 miles to Chico where no one has any reason to go. By afternoon, a couple of cars had pulled over, A couple of drivers gave me a pained expression, and one actually apologized before driving off. After a morning of waiting, a dusty white Jeep Wrangler with crystals glued all over the dashboard pulled into the shoulder. The driver had a good five decades of American spirit yellows in her voice and was heading to Chico. We do the usual hitchhiking joke of, hop in, just don't murder me, okay? And I'm like, ha-ha, deal, you know, don't kill me either, though, ha-ha, wink-wink. We start with the usual light conversation that I'm hoping fills an hour, until we pass by a bridge, and she says, I just don't understand how bridges are built. You know, with the earth being flat and all. And I say nothing, because there's still 57 minutes to fill, And then she adds, My son builds bridges. And now there's 56 minutes, which she takes as permission to launch into every insane conspiracy theory that I've ever heard of. From contrails controlling our minds to the fake moon landing being used to hide the lizard people's lunar base. I also learned that traffic laws are not one of the theories that she believes in. But to her credit, she gets me to Chico in one piece, where I finally unclench my jaw. Smoke from the Sonoma fires were billowing on the horizon by the time I got to my trail angel's house, which turns out to be a small ranch. When I arrive, they're already fielding calls from neighbors, 
trying to shelter their animals before they flee the fires, which are about to become one of the deadliest in California history. But I'm told we won't need to evacuate tonight, and they give me a beer, so things were looking up for the moment. I wandered around outside and saw that her husband was brushing down a horse, and and the horse tried to drink my beer, so I figured we were cool, and I asked, can I ride him? And I said, sure. So I hopped up in my basketball shorts and tank top, grabbed the reins, and trotted out the gate. And after completing my epic, life-changing journey, I rode a horse into the sunset. And as we walked towards that smoky apricot sky, I leaned down and whispered into his ear, I know that this is also a metaphor, but this was the most incredible time in my life, and I still don't know how I'm going to come back home. The horse bobbed his head in agreement, so I guess that resonated with him. A few days later, I flew out of San Francisco as ash was raining down on the city. From cruising altitude, I looked out the window and saw all these Pacific Crest Trail landmarks pass below. Crater Lake, the Sisters, Mount Jefferson, Adams, Helens, Rainier. A thousand miles of nature that I'd walked through during some of the best months of my life. So many places that had helped heal a wound that... I'd never expected to recover from. They passed by in minutes. Charred to carbon, or still burning. The plane touched down and my father met me at arrivals. It'd been two years since I'd left Seattle, and now I was back home with, with no plans for my future. Well, besides drink myself numb that evening. Then find another job and save up to leave again. But that all changed when my dad said, Before we go home, do you want to meet your niece? And I was like, Oh, yeah, right, yeah, of course. A half hour later, my newest favorite person on the earth was asleep in my arms. Of course, she was perfect, just like her brother. But what struck me in that moment was her optimism. She had no idea who I was. She had no idea how bad everything was right now. All I could see is this dark present and a future that's worse. And yet, here's this little beacon that's gonna shine into it no matter what. I didn't know how to fix the entire world. And I didn't know if it even could be fixed. But it was in my power to stick around and try for the people I loved. In the following months, I reconnected with old friends, I threw myself into activism, and I went on frequent hikes to maintain sanity. Of course, things with me weren't magically fixed. I was still a lot more damaged than I realized. And Trump stayed president. Like, every day. 
But after 163 days of mountains, lakes, and landscapes chipping away at that armor, that torn-out space wasn't as ragged as it used to be. I was more open to looking for the good things here. A week after I got home, I met up for a friendly beer with an old acquaintance who just returned from her own life-changing travels. We'd been liking each other's trip photos on Instagram, and she'd messaged to say that if I was free, she'd love to swap some travel stories. I thought, sure, I love talking about myself. We closed down the bar laughing and sharing our stories. By the end of the night, realist that I still was, I began to think that maybe the future could have some good in it as well. Two and a half years later, we were married. That was Paul Barak. He's a freelance writer living in Tacoma, Washington. His first book, which is called Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, tells the true story of a 750-mile Buddhist pilgrimage in Japan, complete with everything that went wrong along the way. You can find the book on Amazon, and you can follow Paul on Instagram at Barak Outdoors. Special thanks to Stephanie Maltrich for sound design on this story. If you enjoyed this story, I'd like to recommend another episode that I think you'll love. It's called The Tools to Thrive, and it's about a thru-hike on the Camino de Santiago. It looks at whether nature is actually necessary for an emotional reset. Do we need to escape to the woods to get ourselves back on track? Or is there more to the equation? Again, that episode is called The Tools to Thrive. Check it out. I think you'll like it. So I'd like to share some feedback we got from a listener regarding the story we aired last week. The story in question was about getting sober. And the listener said that while he appreciated the episode, he took exception to one of the phrases we used, the phrase addicted to AA meetings. The listener said, quote, As a sober alcoholic of 38 years, I've heard this phrase before, and it suggests that in AA, one simply trades one addiction for another, booze for meetings. But my experience is that AA and AA meetings are not something one gets addicted to. It's a spiritual program for living that enables one to recover from addiction and live a meaningful life. To say that one gets addicted to AA and or the meetings belittles the mystery slash beauty of the program and the life-saving chances it enables. End quote. Thank you for the feedback. Words matter, and it's important to us to get things right. I really appreciate this insight. So remember how at the beginning of this episode, I was standing at this viewpoint on a trail and wondering what mountains I was looking at? Well, I'm going to 
take a look at Peak Visor and see if I can figure out what they are. Peak Visor is one of our sponsors for this episode. When I open up their app, it figures out my location, and then a sort of panoramic map opens up on my screen. As I move my phone, the map moves with me so that the mountains on the screen line up with the mountains I'm looking at in real life. Each peak is labeled Comanche Peak, Long's Peak, Clark Peak. You can kind of see just a little bit there. I've been off up uh, Clark's Peak. The Peak Visor app not only shows you what mountains you're looking at when you're off on an adventure, it also gives you 3D maps of the area. It almost feels like you're flying above the mountains, which makes it a great tool for planning hikes. Check out Peak Visor in the App Store. You might love it. If you're new to this podcast, check out the Best of Out There playlist. It's a compilation of some of our favorite episodes of all time. You can find the Best of Out There playlist at our website, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Sheba Joseph is our audience growth director. Our interns are Kara Schaefer and Margaret Warner and Stephanie Maltrich. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you next week. <laughs>